in chapter 22, but mostly our text is coming from chapter 27. Before I read this this morning for us, just a little bit of a review, an overview of where we started and where we are now as we look at the life of David. That's the series we're in, and um, we're asking or sort of looking more intently at how, how, as we learn about the life of David, how we learn to live out of God's grace for his glory, as we see David having to do as well. Since chapter 16, where David was anointed as a young boy by Samuel, we moved into chapter 17, where he gets his first sort of challenge of, um, of fighting Goliath. And then we saw from chapters 18 to 20, these are big, big sort of um, big picture summaries. David is on the run from who is the king at the time, King Saul, the first king of Israel. And we looked at that section. And then after that section, uh, we kind of moved over into chapters 24 to 26. And that becomes a time of, of testing for David in the wilderness. It's all that over the past couple weeks. And so now we move into sort of this last section that we get before Saul dies and before David finally becomes king of Israel. And this is his time in Ziklag. But along the way, we have also been noticing things as we read the text that there are people that are coming to, for various reasons, um, gather and be with David, whether he is in the caves, whether he is out in the wilderness, and certainly now as he goes to this place called Ziklag. And while this doesn't sort of accompany one of the major sections, we're taking some time as we come out of the, this testing narrative to look at uh, these sections of, of who is being gathered uh, as God's people around David in this time of uh, escape and exile as he awaits God's promise to him that he will be king of Israel and as he dis discerns how to trust in the Lord given his circumstances. And so um, I just want to start there as by way of reminder as we read now God's word beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 22 verses 1 to 2 and then headed over to chapter 27 after that to give us a little more context here. So this is the reading of, of God's word. Let's give our attention to his word. Chapter 22, verse 1, David departed from there, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Moving now over to chapter 27, and I'll read all of chapter 27. Then David said in, his, said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Hinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. 
And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the, in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. It's a mouthful. For these who were the for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the gar and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done, such was his custom. And all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Let me also read chapter 28, verses 1 to 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word now, this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. And I pray now that as uh, your word goes out, uh, that it would not return void, that by your spirit you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. And that we would leave here changed people by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, Ada and I spent many years on the college campus doing college ministry. And the number one question, and certainly the number one topic that we dealt with that came up over and over and over was the question, what is God's will for my life? Topic, God's will, um, discerning God's will, anything that would sort of come under that banner. And perhaps you relate to this as well. Um, what does God want me to do here? <laughs> um, what job does he want me to pursue? Uh, maybe you, you were dating somebody and wondering, should I marry this person? How do I know? Uh, what does God want for me in this place? And this was a question that came up over and over and over, and that makes total sense. Right, this is a, a, t a time in, in, in someone's life where they are moving sort of out of this place of being under the care of their parents and learning to um, really live and discern life on their own. And see, it's because of that that I, I don't really think that changes. I think we're all still wrestling with this question. It's not a college-age question. It's a, it's a human life question. What, is, what does God want for me? Uh, what does he want me to do? Does he want me to be here or does he want me to go there? Right? 
Um, does he want me to marry this person? Or did I make the right decision uh, 10 years later? <laughs> you know, what, 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 what is God's will for my life? And I think this is an interesting topic and question that comes up over and over and over again. And when we deal with this topic, right, there's sort of two pathways. There's the pathway of there are tons of good uh, just tools and um, just advice that Scripture gives us to discern God's will. So not denying any of that. Um, and we, we usually spend time talking about those things, equipping people with how is it that you might go about discerning God's will to the best of your ability. The other side of that is you have to trust Jesus. And so as my pastor said, Ryan, you get married, and then you trust Jesus. That's all you have. <laughs> and he was right. Uh, Ryan at the time was thinking, no, there's got to be a way to know for certain that this is exactly what God wants from me. And that's Ryan's way of avoiding tr trusting Jesus. I say that to say that as we come to this text this morning, even as you just heard it read, it's very unique in anything that we've actually kind of read up to this point. And you'll see that to be true as we get into it. Because it just gives us a description of what David is doing. There's no commentary, as you notice, by God uh, as to what he's supposed to be doing, as to whether what he is doing is okay. And, and, and these texts tend to frustrate us as, as Christians or just observers of the Bible because we're not really sure what to do with them. And there's a lot of texts like this where the biblical writers just wrote down the story. And I think this is actually what's helpful for us this morning because it, it validates the experience that we all have as Christians. And that is, we are saved by grace and we get tools to navigate the Christian life. But much of our life is often done under the banner of, what is God doing? And what am I supposed to do in the midst of this? And while, again, there are tools for that that we can talk about at another day, I simply want us to look see in this text that be, as it pertains to the decisions that we have to make, and especially the decisions David has to make in this text, God is calling us to a relationship with him through this confusion, perhaps, through this not knowing exactly what it is we're supposed to do. And that is he's calling his people to trust in him, to know him. And that always begins with his grace and understanding his grace. So I want us to see that in this text, and we'll look at it, uh, we'll look at this in three ways. We'll look at um, the will of God and the people he gathers. We'll look at the will of God and the places he gathers them, and then, the, the, then what discerning God's will actually does for us. So you can think about it like, here's the people God gathers, here's the place that he gathers them, and then what discerning God's will does for us. So let's, let's start there with that first one as we jump in here, the will of God and the people he gathers. As I just got done saying uh, with the review, we are coming out of this testing period where um, David was being tested in so many ways um, that the narratives show us. And we're not sure what's exactly you know, the chronological approach here to all of this, um, if, if the stories are laid out in chronological order. And time becomes to be a little bit of a challenge. We know that there are many years that have gone on as David is waiting to be king. And so at this point, what happens is David is then uh, tired of, uh, of living in caves, and he is tired of, of, of escaping. And so he says to himself, it would be better if I go to the land of the Philistines. That way at least Saul would stop pursuing me. 
And so as he is beginning to do that, we get these glimpses of who, though, has been gathering around David. And that's what chapter 22 points us to. And there's a couple of these summary statements as you move all the way up to 27. And I want us to look at who God is gathering as we look at chapter 22. And the first thing we see that, that as it pertains to who God is gathering around David is first David's family. And if we're following the story, this should be a little bit uh, of, a, of a surprise to us because back when David was fighting Goliath, there was that dialogue between Eliab, which is David, David's older brother, and him. And it just didn't seem like things were really that, going that well with the family. And you can imagine this as, as Samuel calls uh, Jesse to bring all of his sons out and he goes kind of one by one and none of them are God's anointed. Yet who's God's anointed? The runt of the, of the family, the one out there doing the pointless work. Well, not pointless work, but just the, the work of, of, being, of tending the fields. It's, it's David. And, you know, like I know what it's like when I give one of my kids right, a, a pack of Skittles and not the others. And the chaos that ensues, uh, the jealousy. I can only imagine that, uh, and we get glimpses of it, that David's brothers felt the same in some ways. This wouldn't be the first time in the biblical narratives. Um, and so we leave there like wondering, what is the relationship between David and his family? And then all of a sudden here in 22, we find out that it's his family who is coming to him. And this might be confusing to us until we realize, well, what are the choice that they have after everything that we've read? Here you have King Saul trying to kill David. He's already trying to kill his own family. <laughs> He's a bit of a madman. What makes David's family think that they, he won't come for them? And so they go to be with them whether they like it or not. Those are the circumstances, okay? Some of us might have stronger feelings about our family coming to stay with us <laughs> than this next group which is, we are told, the distressed, those in debt, and those who are bitter in soul. Who are these people? The distressed would be the vulnerable. It would be those without means. Uh, it could be the elderly, too, perhaps at least those who were able to travel. Uh, the, the sick, the homeless, those who are afraid. Or those who suffered major fallout. Uh, maybe some of their family members were killed because of Saul. So now they don't have any place to go. They're the distressed. The In other words, the distressed are not always those bringing a lot to the table in the ways that we like to talk about it financially, socially, politically, etc. They are otherwise marginalized people. But then there's those who are in debt. Who are these people? Well, as you can imagine, these are people who would owe money. It's people who perhaps thought, um, I'll take my chances on the run, and they go south to be with David's company. They could be servants. They could even be outlaws, criminals even. They might be more able-bodied, but would probably have few resources to offer. Chances are they probably aren't the friendliest bunch of people either. But lastly, there's the bitter in soul or the discontent, the text says. This would be those disillusioned with Saul as king in general. Those who had hopes for what he might actually do as king and for Israel, but are discontent now with the direction that things are going. Their promises are not being fulfilled. Perhaps of all of these, we can enter into this group. So they are, quote-unquote, voting with their feet and hoping things work out better with David as they head south. 
So we see it's David's family, and we see that it's this motley crew of misfits that have come to be with David. Not exactly the type of people that you might think of when you are about to start your next church or your next business. Right? These are not the people you think about who will begin to uh, be the kernel, as it were, of the next great revolution. And maybe more closer to home, these aren't necessarily the people that you're planning on inviting to your next social function at your house. I don't know how many of you think about setting the dinner table and, and inviting people over for a social function, thinking, you know who we need here? You know who we need more of? We need some of those bitter and soul people. I just love those people. They're so fun to be around. I doubt that's what we think. But friends, that's who God is gathering right now around David. And in fact, this is the beginning of the next revolution in God's great plan. This group will, in fact, change the world, believe it or not. Richard Phillips notes it this way. He says, under David's influence, these followers formed the initial nucleus of what would become a great and glorious kingdom, the legacy which will literally last forever. This description of those God is gathering then should not surprise us either, as people probably familiar with the biblical stories and narratives in the New Testament, right? Consider what we read about in the Gospels as to who is gathering both around Jesus, but who Jesus is gathering around himself, right? First, consider the calling of the Twelve. We've talked about this. These are nobodies as far as society is concerned. These are fishermen, tradesmen. They don't have, uh, or very few were educated, we could say, but very few had social influence, God's people for sure, but they are not the movers and shakers of society by any stretch of the imagination. Second, you have Jesus spending time with what? Sinners and tax collectors. We read it earlier in our scripture reading, as well as the poor and the marginalized. We look at a story in Luke 7, which reminds us of a dinner party that a Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus to. And if you remember the setting of that, right, that Jesus is reclined at table with those Pharisees, and, you know, the Pharisees are kind of, you know, playing their socialite card with this new up-and-coming, um, you know, teacher. And then all of a sudden, somehow, this, this woman, leave it at that, more than likely a prostitute, makes her way into the inner circles of this dining meal experience and begins weeping over Jesus, cleaning his feet with her tears, and anointing him with her scent. And what is it, if you recall the story, what is it that, that, that Simon says? says? Simon says, if this man, referring to Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus hears this, and he says, Simon, uh, let me tell you a story. And Jesus says, Here's a story about two debtors. And he goes on to talk about two people, one who owes little and one who owes much. And he says to Simon, which one, you know, they're both forgiven. Which one is going to be the most excited? Well, probably the one who is forgiven the most. And he says, exactly. And the point of this, this parable that he's saying is that those who know they are sinners and know that they need much forgiveness, those are the people, what, who forgive much. 
who show grace. Simon has little grace to offer in this story because he doesn't think he needs much forgiveness. And so when in the company of this woman, a sinner that he rejects uh, and treats her like she is a nobody, this is the very people God is gathering in his kingdom. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, the people God is gathering around David in this text in chapter 22 and the people God is gathering today in his church and everyone in between, right, they're still the same. They're rarely ever the people that we think God could use for his purposes or kingdom, and they are also often the people we don't necessarily desire to be around at first if we are honest. They are not going to get you into those inner circles at work or in society. They are not the pretty people or the ones that have it all together, together, whatever that may be and whatever that means. They are often awkward people, difficult and strange, broken people with problems and issues that a whole team of doctors, lawyers, psychiatrists can't fix. They are frustrating and they cause problems. They hurt you. And they often don't seem very welcoming to to others. They are sinners in every sense of the word. And what this text is telling us this morning is that it is a privilege to be named among them. That's the church, y'all. It is a privilege to be named among them. But that's only true for you this morning If what? Coming back to Simon, if grace is real. If you have been forgiven much. If you know that you need this grace. If you can see that. If you can see that what is perhaps true of the the distressed, those in debt, and the bitter in soul, externally, is actually a window into your own soul internally. If you can see that that's who you are, then you're in a good place. That you need to be forgiven. That you need something to come in and fix that. Because that's what it means to truly be God's people. To learn to live out of the grace that he has given you. And that happens among the people God gathers. And it's happening here with David on the run, and it's happening with his church. I'm going to belabor this first point because I just think this is good. I got a lot of mileage out of the honesty from Eugene Peterson who says this about God's people with respect to this text. It's a little long, but... It says, every time I move to a new community, I find a church close by and join it, committing myself to worship and work with that company of God's people. I've never been anything other than disappointed. 
So glad you can laugh at that. He says, everyone turns out to be biblical. Murmurs, complainers, the faithless, the inconsistent, those plagued with doubt and riddled with sin, boring moralizers, glamorous secularizers. Every once in a while, though, a shaft of blazing beauty might or seems to break out of nowhere and illuminate these companies. And then I see what my sin-dulled eyes had missed. Word of God-shaped people. Holy Spirit-created lives of sacrificial humility, incredible courage, heroic virtue, holy praise, joyful suffering, constant prayer, persevering obedience. I see Christ, and I see Christ in 10,000 places. I love that. Because it tells us what has always been true, that God is in the business, what, of gathering the distressed, those in debt or outlawed, and the bitter in soul, those discontent. Because, friends, he is in the business of taking the unloved and the unlovable and making them lovely by his grace, by his blood. That's the church. That happens among the people of God that he gathers, and I guarantee that's happening with David and those with him. One question to consider, especially if you're doing small groups tonight or this week, what would Christianity be like without verses like 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 to 2? Or Luke 7, the parable of the two debtors? Or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 28? What would it be like? This is who God gathers. Second, we see, though, that God is not just gathering a people. We see the place in which he is gathering them and what that means. So as we head over to 27 now, we note that at the end of uh, chapter 22, we read that David was captain over these people. He's going to lead these people that, that God is gathering around him. And so 27 begins with David saying in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So the weariness of being chased, the weariness of sleeping in caves, of wondering uh, what move to make next is, is, is building on David. And David has now decided that the best place to go is into enemy territory, the land of the Philistines, which would be roughly southwest of Jerusalem towards Egypt. And he's doing this so that Saul, you know, to get away from Saul. And it works. It works. Saul sees that and he backs away. So David goes along with the 600 men following him and along with their wives and children, the text says. It says it finds uh, himself back, though, in the company of this king of Gath, King Achish. Um, we, we didn't talk about this uh, from here, but in chapter 21, he um, flees Saul, and he finds himself in the company of Achish. And Achish knows who he is because he's familiar with that tune. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his tens thousands. And so he knows who David is, and, and he tries to kill him. And then David acts as this crazy person and somehow escapes. It's kind of interesting. Go check it out. It's at the end of chapter 21. But now, for some reason, things have changed because David has somehow convinced Achish that he is no longer um, with, or, you know, he's no longer on, the, on, on Team Israel in some, one sense. He's no longer on Team Saul. 
He's actually coming uh, to seek refuge. And I think Achish looks at this and thinks, well, it would, it, wouldn't, it would be nice to have, you know, another small army around. And so Achish brings him in. And over the course of their time together, he builds trust, trust with Achish. And, and, and David's people, uh, they, 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 they grow in number. And it gets to the, the point where he asks Achish, hey, can, is there a place we could live? Like, we don't need to be in the same town or you know, royal city that you are. Uh, you got anything for us. I've certainly, you know, hopefully earned your trust. And so he says, yes, I have the place for you, Ziklag. So David and his people go there for 16 months. Not only are you hanging out with the, the distressed, um, the, those in debt, um, the bitter in soul, you are going on a trip with them into enemy territory to live together in a place you've never heard of called Ziklag. But this, like so many others, is the place that God gathers his people. See, the first thing we learn about the place that God gathers his people from this text is that it's typically a place that you don't want to go to, <laughs> or at least a place you never thought you'd be. Six times since chapters 19 and 2 in this very chapter of the, of, uh, the narrative that I just read, right, we are told that, that, that David is escaping. Now in chapter 27, he will escape to the Philistines to flee Saul. So by definition, this has led David to a place he probably never thought about going. Or a place he thought he'd never be. Ada and I have never uh, been on the run or trying to escape, at least that, that we're aware of. <laughs> but we can attest to finding ourselves in places we never thought we'd be. And I'm sure you can too. Right? When we were applying for jobs just out of seminary, we, we were preparing to head west. Uh, we wanted to go back into college ministry and work with RUF. And all the jobs were west of the Mississippi. That's where the growth was. And so we were preparing for that. And we had no um, idea that the Lord would open up the University of Alabama, which is in this small town called Tuscaloosa. I can, I can be honest with you, especially as a Tennessee grad and as Auburn, or as Ada as an Auburn grad, that there's never been anything inside of me that says, man, I, I hope I can just get back to Tuscaloosa. Would, Lord, would the Lord call me to Tuscaloosa? There, there was never an ounce of me that, that thought, if I could only have my four kids born in Tuscaloosa. Now, that's been other people's dreams. It wasn't, wasn't mine. But this is what happened. We did. This is what, this is what happened. And, and we loved it. We loved it. I remember visiting Tuscaloosa for the first time after we had moved to Fort Worth, Texas, and we were back visiting friends and driving through town, and I looked at Ada, and I just said, how did we live here for seven years? It, it seemed so small compared to Fort Worth at the time. Well, still... But I'm sure you have experiences like this, and maybe you're experiencing this now where, where we are today. I don't, I don't know. But regardless, just as God gathers the people, right, he always has a place for those people for his purposes. And it's with those people in that place where God is what? He's actually growing you. Where you are learning in ways that him only sending you to that place, to Tuscaloosa, to wherever it is for you, that you can grow. And just at the time you want to stay 
because you're beginning to like this place, what does he do? He sends you someplace else. And why? I don't know. I don't know. But what I can say at this point is I know that it's so that his people will continue to learn to live out of his grace for his glory. That he truly is sufficient. That he is enough. See, there's a phrase that you might have heard before that says that, uh, you know, especially in the church, we talk about blooming where you are planted. If you've heard that phrase, I don't know if that's a southern phrase. But the idea is that wherever God sends you, while it might not be the place of your dreams, right, or where you thought you'd be living, there is good work to be done as followers of Jesus. So bloom where you are planted, And this is just as true for college students as it is for professionals, as it is for young families, as it is for the elderly. Bloom where you are planted. Don't just think of this place as a means of either getting where you want to go or of just this is where I happen to, to work. As if God has nothing to say over where he has sent you. So grow roots. Love a place, invest, no matter if you're here for six months, two years, or for the rest of your life. Allow the Lord to work through you for the time he has you here because as Christians, right, we sign on for something bigger than just this is where I live. We sign on for this is God's kingdom. God is at work here among these people and in this place even if I don't fully know how or why, because that is Ziklag. That is exactly where David and his people are. Ziklag is where God's people will, quote, bloom where they are planted for the next 16 months under David's leadership. The text does not say this, so I'm going to speculate, but I imagine that David prayed And I imagine that because he prayed, he also taught others to pray. And I imagine some of that happened in Ziklag. I imagine that David also taught. And he reminded people of the promises of God in Ziklag. Of God's faithfulness to them. I imagine that here, right, this core of misfits, as we've called them already, began to be shaped and molded into something of a church, which will be the seeds, as we said, of the kingdom of God that he has promised David for Israel's sake after Saul dies. And we know how the story ends with David and this kingdom. It is, it is the high water mark for Israel. Can they see that in Ziklag, in enemy territory at this point? No. Do they know how long they're going to be there? No. Do they know what, what God is going to do tomorrow for them? No. Can they see God's purposes? No. Is God at work? Yes. Yes. is why the promise matters. You might not know what's in front of you today, but here's the promise that's guiding you. David, you will return to Israel. You will be king. That's going to be enough for you today as you discern life in Ziklag. Before we move out of this point, may this be an encouragement to us wherever God plants us, wherever we may go or where we find ourselves today, that there are no small, insignificant places in the kingdom of God. Your dorm room, your office, work, your home, no small places. No small places. 
in the kingdom of God, and that our chief desire would be then what to bloom, to bear fruit wherever God chooses to plant us for his purposes, because that's the place where he has us for us to learn to live out of his grace for his glory. This gets to my final point then, discerning God's will and what it does for us as we travel through David and his people's life to Ziklag. What does David do in Ziklag? And I'm just going to be blunt and try to be as clear as possible in this last section. This is, this is hard. Um, I don't know as I read it, I don't know if some things stood out to you that were confusing, but here's, what, here, here's what's going on. David has found himself in a place that I'm sure he didn't want to be in, but he's trying to get, rid of, get away from Saul. And so he goes to enemy territory at this point, and now he's got to figure out, how do I live in between these two worlds of, of, of keeping away from Saul, at the same time making good with King Achish? So he navigates that. Is that okay? I don't know. Text doesn't say. So he asks to go live in Ziklag, and while he's doing that, we find out that he goes to fight the, the, the inhabitants of old. And what is that? That's a throwback to Joshua. We started there at the beginning of this series. He's talking about uh, the inhabitants of the land that Israel was supposed to drive out in the very beginning. And so there's a sense there as we're, as we're reading this, and certainly as, as, first, as, as those whom this was written to first are reading this, this is God's work. David is going, and, and though he is slaughtering everybody... This is God's work. However, he is bringing back things. And when you study the ban, right, right the, the, the conquests, it is a holy offering, which meant that as Israel went in, they weren't to take anything because it was to be left and offered to God. Now, if you get into the study of it, there are some times where God does allow them to bring that loot. But for the most part, it was always, everything was consumed to the Lord as a micro of God's wrath of what should be happening to Israel. And as we read that today, what should be happening to us? But it doesn't because of Jesus. Right, so you're reading this and you're, you're like, well, this seems okay, but why is he taking these animals? And he's killing everybody so that they don't go tell Achish what he's doing. Because Achish thinks he's what? Fighting Israel. In that last sec- that section there, he talks about the Negev. That's just a general term of where Jews probably lived. He's not being specific about what he's doing. He's having to navigate the situation that he's in, and these are the choices that he has to make. I'm sure there's a point in time where he's like, what does God want me to do here? How am I supposed to live as I have Saul on one side and as I have this king on the other, as I wait for the Lord's provision to send me back to Israel. He's in a tough spot. And we can play Monday morning quarterback all we want to. We can say things like, which I I appreciate many commentaries noting, it's easy to moralize this and say, you know what, this is because David didn't trust God. He should have stayed in the caves. Maybe. I don't know. doesn't say that. God never told him where to go. Is it wrong for David to flee to the Philistines? I don't know. What about David's raids? We just talked about that. I don't know. I looked at close to 15 commentaries on this text, and the ones that even address chapter 27 
all talk about the silence from the Lord. And I think that's the point. And it's why I actually love this chapter, because of what, not because of what it says, but because of what it doesn't say. And in so doing, it validates an aspect of our lives as God's creatures. And that is what God is doing in that moment is often not known to us. And more importantly, how we are to live, what is God's will for my life in this very moment, that absolute uncertainty that we tend to want to, to, to have, whether for us or for our kids or whatever, that is often not given to us. And so we are left to make decisions for the best, with the best wisdom that we can. And let me be really clear, I am not at all saying that if, if David is murdering people, that that's okay. That's not what's, that's not what's being said here. The point is, is that the, the lack of commentary is just to show that, that this is what a lot of the Christian life looks like. But is, is David without a word here? No, he has a promise. He has a promise. He's a promise that he's going to be king. <clears throat> and this is where I'll, I'll land the plane, crash landing here. We got to go. David knows what God's going to do. He doesn't know, as a lot of those people do, what, what, is to, what is for today? What am I supposed to be doing today? And there's a part of us that as we are discerning God's will too, and as we are trying to figure out what God has for us today, there's a promise that, that sits behind this too that points forward as well. And it's this table. It's the cross. It's, it's a place where, where while you aren't sure of, of the decisions that you are to be making today because life is complicated and maybe you find yourself in a, in, a, in, a, in a place where I'm not sure how I got here. And I don't know which play, which, which, how, which, how to move forward. And again, there's a lot of, lot of wisdom, a lot of, lot of ways to discern that, but is there absolute certainty? There often isn't. That even in those places, you are guided and given the promise of God which is him asking you to trust him to live out of his grace. For David, it's, you're going to be king. You will return. For us, it's another king's return. Is it not? And that's what this table points us to. So sort of the ambiguity of life is not the absence, right, of God with you and among you in those decisions uh, with whatever people he's gathered around you and whatever place he's taking you, right? It's not the absence of God with you, right? It's the promise that he is in the midst of you as we look at his cross and remember that promise to us as we move forward. We sang about it earlier. I wanted to write this down in our hymn of the month. I could not see through the shadows ahead, so I looked, what, at the cross of my Savior instead. And we'll sing about it in our closing hymn that, that as we move forward as God's people in the place that he has gathered us, discerning the decisions that he has before us, which are all teaching us to live out of his grace We'll sing these words in our closing hymn. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. That's God's promise to you today. Wherever you find yourself, would we never stop then learning to live out of his grace for us? 
as the people he has gathered and the place he's gathered them and the decisions that we have ahead of us. And all those things are leading us into a deeper relationship of trust with him. Would that, would that happen for Wallace for God's glory? That is my prayer. Uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text and we thank you for the validation that life is not easy and the choices we have before us are often challenging. But there's grace for that. And it's not a license to do whatever we want to do. It's not a license to not care or be indifferent. But it's your promise that gives us rest to know that you are with us, that you have a plan for this, even though we might not be able to understand it or know what it is uh, in, in the circumstance itself. And as we look throughout Scripture, we see what you're doing over and over and over. So you're gathering a people to a place for your purposes. And as we come to the cross now, would we be reminded of the promise that sits behind us and points us to the direction that we are all headed, which is the new heavens and new earth with the return of our King. Not David, but Jesus. Would that be enough for us today? Would that be grace? Would that be uh, sufficient for us as your people? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.